welcome to Rethink, the podcast that explores the people and products shaping innovation and those designing for resilience, hosted by Philip Beer. Hello and welcome. Today we are with Dr. Whitney Austin Gray, and the topic is sleep and resilience. Dr. Gray is Senior Vice President and Head of Delos Insights. She leads the Insights team focused on conducting industry research and supporting adoption of healthy building practices. Prior to joining Delos, Dr. Gray served as the Health Research and Innovation Director for Canon Design, a global healthcare design firm. That is a short bio. Dr. Gray, if you could please provide those listening with a little more detail about your work and your experience. Absolutely. Well, I I think I'm best described as a like design groupie. So I come from the field of public health. Uh, that's where all my research has been. But ultimately, if we can't translate health into design, then we can't create places for people to live, work, play, and heal uh, to their best. And so I love working with designers and architects, sustainability experts, real estate developers who are open to how you translate health into design. And very few have had any experience or formal training in it. So it's a great partnership. Uh, so part of my work is also at, at Georgetown. I work with lots of universities to, to help, help students hopefully pursue this field and marry the different professions. So it's definitely um, a passion of mine to try to translate this field, um, translate the data into practice and work with experts really around the world that are changing this industry. Um, you know, real estate's been considered a $223 trillion industry, which is just mind-blowing, and wellness, the next trillion-dollar industry. So it's a real honor to come from the field of public health, but spend a lot of time in design trying to translate that into practice. And before we talk about sleep and resiliency, um, how can people reach you if they want to get in touch? Sure. Uh, so the best way probably is email, I think. So that would be whitney.gray at delos.com. And uh, gray is G-R-A-Y. That's the easiest. And would love to write back to you. And of course, the Delos website is a great place for information. Um, and happy to link in with folks around the world that are interested in this topic. So, Dr. Gray, what should we know about Sleep. Um, sleep is only going to be something you're going to hear more about from the health community. About a third of American adults right now do not get enough sleep, um, and that's estimated to be over $400 billion um, per year in costs that are linked to insufficient sleep. And I think what's interesting about sleep is a lot of people aren't even aware that, yes, they're even trying to go to bed when they do, but they're having allergies, asthma, light exposure during the day is impacting their sleep quality. So even if they're in bed, they're still not getting the quality of sleep that they need. And then they wake up fatigued and tired. Um, and of course, that has a significant impact on our ability to focus during the day. There's a lot of work on beta amyloids. And essentially, these are build up, the buildup in your brain that flushes through sleep. And it's really critical that we get sleep and for multiple reasons, but I think there's a lot more research on that. Um, but for those individuals that are really trying to do their best, but not able to get the sleep that they need, um, I think all too often the medical field says just, you know, victim blame, just deal with sleeping pills or try a sleep study or sleep monitoring devices or I'm a health coach. And we actually spend um, an estimated $41 billion on sleeping aids in 2015 in this country, and that's expected to go up. So I think given that this is a significant public health issue, not enough people are looking at your home 
which I do think is where your heart is and literally your heart spends most time in the home. Um, it's a solution where people are really understanding the environment plays a really critical role in supporting their ability to have good quality sleep. What are some myths around sleep? For example, we hear often that great leaders sleep less. They get up early. They rise at 4 a.m. Um, what are some of these myths that need to be dispelled? Yes, you you called it. So in the U.S. in particular, we have this warrior mentality. Um, in fact, physicians are often guilty of this, which means I don't I don't need it, right? I, I can deal with anything. I'm a warrior. Um, physicians and nurses also are the number one industry for burnout. <laughs> and burnout is also you know linked to the sleep issue where you're not letting your body recover. So I often say that if you walk into the office and tell the world that you know you spent um, all night working on a project and you only slept four hours, you're basically announcing to the world that you'll be ineffective, that you will have trouble making decisions, you'll have challenges emotionally being able to have intelligence around those decisions. So you're announcing that you're going to be ineffective, which is not necessarily something that you want to be telling people when you walk in the office. Um, so we need to absolutely dispel this idea that um, when you sleep little, that's a sign of strength. Actually, when you sleep little, it's a sign that you're potentially not going to be at your best or maybe even a weakness, it could be argued. There's been entire books written on the topic as far as getting up early yeah. and um, waking up, the benefits of waking up at 4 a.m. How do we know if we're an early morning person, some people are more productive later at night? How does that factor, morning persons versus a night person, uh, play into this conversation? Yes, there is a great book called Why We Sleep. And this is written by a sleep scientist researcher um, who studied at Harvard. And they're really trying to understand the um, morning birds and the late owls. And this also has to do with brain function when we're alert and when your prefrontal cortex is able to focus. Uh, most of us get a spike of cortisol about an hour after we wake up. For those of us that are early birds, we are able to jump out of bed, and within that hour, we're making decisions, right? We are making our to-do list. We are Our day is off to the races, and society supports that. Society has a lot of 9 a.m. start times. Um, but there are another segment of the population that are often fatigued and tired because their brain actually turns on a little bit later in the morning. We see different spikes hormonally. And then they really, their peak time is going to be in the evening. You know, it's almost like that 10 to 2 a.m. is when they can finally focus. And we'll use those words often. I, it's the only time I can focus. Um, and they have a harder time maybe getting to sleep early. And so they're, they're always a couple hours difference. Um, and that society does not, I think, support the late owls because often those early morning meetings would put those late owls at disadvantage. I think what's really interesting is a, a lot of us, myself included, have partners that are the opposite of us. Um, and there's evolutionary argument that, you know, when you had to look for threat from, you know, we're talking about uh, true evolution here is that one partner would be able to search for the threat and then you would basically trade task. And so another partner would be able to search for that threat. So maybe there's something to it, um, but it does kind of lead into homes and how your home is designed, because often you have two different types of people at two different times of the day trying to manage and juggle their issues around sleep and sleep quality. How do we know, say, sleeplessness, how do we know it's sleep-related or could it be stress or anxiety, and is there a difference? That's, that's a great question. Uh, I think that there is increasing attention that 
most of us don't have quiet moments throughout the day. Um, this is being termed that, you know, we need to be more mindfulness. Some use meditation focuses. Um, but essentially, these are times in which we quiet and filter, filter throughout the day. Um, and oftentimes, for many, that's right before they go to sleep. It's the first time they've had a quiet moment and their brain is like, perfect, uh, let's get to it, and starts processing the entire day. And so although they're sitting in bed and typically they'll say, yes, I went to bed at 11 p.m., they're not actually into sleep or in the deeper levels of consciousness and maybe an hour or two passes. Um, I often say that you know, if you want to run a marathon, you're in the gym every single day. Like you're not just going to jump up and run a marathon, <laughs> right? But we don't think about the fact that you have to train your mind the same way. And you can't just expect to jump up and be under intense stress and execute, you know, the highest level, best project of your life without training your mind. And so it's an interesting question that you ask of, you know, how do we know what type of sleep we are or we're not getting? And what if that related to anxiety? And I, I think we're still exploring those answers. But one of the things that I would turn to is this idea that in our day, we rarely um, have a quiet moment. We rarely let the brain filter. And it oftentimes chooses the end of the day, the one time that we stop right before sleep to do that filtering. And so there are better ways to kind of take your brain to the gym <laughs> in advance of that. And so you're actually training the brain to kind of let down quickly and, and hopefully that can help support that ability that when you are going to sleep, that you're falling asleep uh, quickly. For sleep quality, there's probably behavioral items that influence good or bad, but there's probably also design within the home to influence quality or poor sleep. Um, could you talk a little bit about both. Yeah, absolutely. So within the last 10 years, uh, there's been increased research to focus on circadian lighting and in particular the discovery of the um, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And those are run through the superchiasmatic nucleus. And that's just like a whole bunch of fun words to say at once. Um, essentially, this is a third mechanism of the eye. So you have your rods and cones, and now you have this intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. The reason this is important is because this is going to modulate, um, amongst many things, your sleep cycles, your circadian rhythm. So if you're blind, you still, of course, have this mechanism. What many people don't think about is that they go to bed, turn the lights off, and just assume they're going to sleep. Well, there's lots of things influencing that. We already talked about kind of calming the brain. Other things that influence that, it's going to be light during the day. So were you stimulated to be able to wake up? produce that cortisol, be able to focus during the day, and now recover at night. If you want to experiment with this, uh, jumping on an airplane is a great way to figure out what happens when you don't have the right amount of light during the day, and then have a difficult time at night. And also, of course, your rhythms are shifted a bit on time zones. So the right amount of light during the day is critical. This idea that we are the indoor generation, um, the indoor era that we spend over 90% of our time indoors, has a significant impact on our ability to connect our eye that intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglia cells to the sun and get the light during the time of day we need it. Um, there's a lot of estimates out there, but essentially four to six hours, we want a certain quality of light that mimics the sun, that stimulates those photos um, receptors to be able to say, okay, I'm awake. And it's, it also modulates melatonin. So these are a lot of different terms, but essentially remember that light during the day is critical. Light at night, number two, is a big thing in your home. 
So uh, light at night is going to be from those amazing devices that we love. So our iPhones and our TVs are sending out blue light. Blue light actually mimics blue light of sunrise. And sunrise wakes us up. So we're sending our brain signals late at night under stress of uh, wake up, wake up. So the research is demonstrating that if you focus on your iPhone or blue light uh, before bed, that can uh, delay the onset of sleep by 11 minutes and delay the onset of waking by 11 minutes. That's not even considering the, the depth of sleep that you receive, right? Um, so that's the second thing, as I'd say, is light at night um, from our devices. The third thing would be um, the environments that we sleep in. There's increasing research that if you have a light on, um, that that, dis that distinctly can impact your quality of sleep. And so as we're dealing with um, light at night, thinking about those blackout shades and thinking about using alternative lighting sources, um, if you have a partner that has different rhythms than you, um, if the only option is an overhead light, well, that's not going to be good for the early bird, for example. Um, so things like task lighting or circadian lighting that's gently coming on in the morning and gently dimming in the evening, um, track lights, some of these things offer alternatives so that allows you to have a dark environment that engages sleep quickly. So uh, light during the day, uh, light at night from your devices, and then also light at night as far as making sure that you have a dark environment for sleep. So many of those uh, listening work indoors all day. So what can they do uh, if they're in an office that doesn't particularly have daylighting? Uh, what should they be doing? Yeah. Uh, so with the, we work very closely with the International Building Institute. Uh, they're a subsidiary of Delos, and they run the Well Building Standard, and they have some very precise guidelines uh, for an office that's pursuing well to make sure that you have occupants that have access to windows throughout the day. Um, it's shocking to me how long that's been instituted in Europe, that you need to be 27 feet or so away from the window, and how long it's taken for us to institute um, that in the U.S., where over 90% of people need to have access to that light. So, yes, projects that pursue well, projects are demonstrating, even with some of the lead requirements, that there is more access to light for um, the occupants. The problem is light in the back of your head won't help. You need to have light in your eye. And so if you're in a situation where you can't get the outdoor light that you need, um, there are some alternatives. I mean, a big one would be getting that 10-minute walk outside. Uh, and, I mean, this is so many benefits for just resting, recovering, um, getting your metabolic rate up, right, getting oxygen levels producing, but also having that light in the eye. If you jump off an airplane in New Zealand, making sure that that daylight gets in your eye quickly also helps with these extreme um, jet lag scenario. So the, the same thing can happen during the day that you get outside and look at the light, um, particularly when you have that kind of morning light towards the beginning of the day that can kind of help to engage those rhythms. Um, there are um, different energizing lights. So we are definitely involved in some products with energizing lights or when you think about blue light therapy. And this will be where you're actually introducing blue lights into scenarios, which will help you. Um, so seasonal affective disorder, so a lot of these lamps that are available that have had a lot of interesting research with mental health conditions, anxiety issues, for example, and definitely seasonal affective disorder. I think they're often misused, to be honest. I see people use them for three hours or four hours, um, and they really need to follow the recommended level is and focus on the morning use of it versus the afternoon use of it. 
um, in particular, but there's a lot of inexpensive options that are out there that some of them click on your computer, you know? So I think we're coming up with better ways to do this. And by no means am I endorsing one or the other as the end all be all solution. But I will say for the individual consumer, you know, talk to your building or talk to your organization about pursuing well, or about at least, you know, adapting some of those features. It's free to download. You can always check out what we're doing there. And then as an individual, if you're not able to, to be part of those systems quite yet, taking up some individual actions to get outside, expose your eye to light, and then even think about some of the different lighting solutions you can bring indoors um, for more individualized task lighting and for some of the blue light that can help um, help you get to those levels that you need of sunlight during the day. What about naps? <laughs> Good or bad? Oh my gosh, naps. <laughs> so from a built environment perspective, we will see a lot more solutions for napping. Um, so yes is the answer, but only for a certain period of time. So the research is saying around 20 minutes. Um, the naps that last 40, 50 minutes, what happens is you can potentially trigger certain sleep cycles um, and you go into too deep of a sleep and that can, can affect actually your ability to get to sleep later, for example, and has to do with um, REM sleep cycles. So 20 minutes is ideal. In 20 minutes, you are breaking down those beta amyloids. And that's really critical. There's almost like fragments in your brain if you think and throughout the day, um, these build and night you're flushing them. Um, so this is really critical. And the research has shown that for fighter pilots and for surgeons that need to have an air rate, um, we're talking about six sigma air rate, like not allowed, people, people can die if there's an air made, is that caffeine cannot replace their ability, particularly for strategic and creative thought, the way that a nap can. So it's kind of interesting. If you need to power through a project and you are doing, you know, your Excel spreadsheet and your data and you're just trying to kind of rote memory, it turns out caffeine can help a lot. But creative thought in particular, the ability to problem solve, um, we do need that nap to flush those beta amyloids and allow us to focus. So the power nap is about 20 minutes and that's recommended. And we're actually exploring a lot of interventions. Um, Mind Breaks is one for us at Delos, which we're creating a sleep room for people at work. And this is not just like, oh, a closet, right? This is really designed to help you get to that sleep or get to the meditation level as fast as possible with these are zero gravity issues and weighted blankets and, you know, meditation um, that's being played. So I think there's a lot of interventions that are going to be coming to support sleep that you'll start seeing at work and at home. And I cannot support um, the power nap <laughs> more. I think that there's only increasingly going to be a lot more research on it. And my, my final note on this, which is kind of interesting, is that if you want to double up, not recommending it, but just saying caffeine takes a while to kick in. Um, so about 30 minutes, 40 minutes, depends on, you know, for different people, but you could actually have your cup of coffee, power nap, and then wake up and you'll be quite alert <laughs> if you do that. So, you know, it's, uh, like I said, not necessarily recommending, I think nap is more the strategy, but it is kind of interesting as people are trying to adapt to make sure that, you know, their offices and their homes allow their brain to be at the highest level, um, to be able to do what they need to do. And I think sleep is a critical strategy. Uh, a final thought on sleep is the tracker. So I use the Fitbit and then I wake up and it says I was awake, REM sleep, light and deep. What's the breakdown? Where should those be landing? For example, a lot of times my REM or deep um, usually runs like an hour each, but sometimes it's a lot less. Yes, I think there's increasingly sensors and we're involved in looking at those that can monitor your sleep cycles. 
The trick with most of those is that they're going to give you cursory data. It's not going to be what we call thin data. It's not uh, deep data. So it's you can almost overly rely on this thin data and be like, oh, that's the reason. You know, this is the change. Well, in reality, if you were to be part of a sleep study or you talk to sleep experts, I think there's a lot of pushback to say those devices are the beginning, but they're not the end all be all. And you shouldn't be making decisions about your health based on those. But they are in the world of precision health, you know, something where individualized data, you can go to your doctor and say, look, I've been tracking this. This is reason for concern or I want this to be noted. And that can be powerful for your doctor to then take the next step that she needs to to monitor that more deeply. So I would say that, you know, if you're monitoring home and again, not an expert on this per se, but I, I think that it's really interesting to look at your own rhythms and your behaviors. So if you're really having a hard time sleeping and you're monitoring this with a Fitbit, for example, start looking at those behaviors, right? Getting to bed earlier, exposure to blue light, light during the day, darkness at night, uh, different behaviors or caffeine that you had, right? And then you can start looking at this over time and understanding your body is doing a massive amount of recovery during sleep. So if you don't create conditions that allow that to happen, of course, those sleep cycles will vary. Um, and I think when it's really interesting to look at athletes, right? Athletes, recovery time, ability to be at their highest level, and how they're looking at these sort of sleep cycles in new ways. So I said, it's great to be able to monitor your own data. It's the world of precision health. You know, get clear on your data, but also don't make significant causal you know, decisions that this, this means, therefore, that I don't sleep well. I think it's really just the beginning of being able to track it, and that can be very empowering um, for individuals, particularly those that are committed to taking wellness into their own hands. Dr. Gray, at this podcast series is leading up to Hive in December, and the theme is resiliency. And there have been past uh, interviews that talk about resiliency in regard to cities and to uh, buildings. But let's talk a little bit about resiliency and people. Yes. Uh, so I'm... I'm so excited you're taking on the topic of resiliency. And as a health professional, I don't look at resiliency about how the building will be able to adapt during a natural disaster. I look at how the individual and the community will adapt. And so instead of, instead of assuming or hoping, I should say, that you will not have a natural disaster happen, or you'll hope that not significant amount of stress will hit your system, you actually anticipate that that will happen. So instead of trying to reduce the stress, instead, you build up your ability to recover so that you get faster at being able to recover. And recovery and resilience are very closely linked. So think about it this way, right, is that um, to be resilient any given day when you go into work, you have the demands that your boss wants, you have a deadline for a paper, you have your spouse that needs something, um, your kids are calling you, you have, you know, increasing demands. And any given day, if something happens, now you're buying a house, you're going through a divorce, you're dealing with life, right? And all of a sudden, those stressors start adding up and adding up and adding up. And it's not, so the idea of resiliency or recovery is that because you slept well, because you're eating the food that your body needs, because you're moving the way that you need to, because you have healthy relationships in your life, is that those stressors hit and quite literally, you adapt to them better. The definition of environmental stress is when the demands of the environment exceed your ability to cope. So kind of way of looking at this is we're creating a resilient individual who recovers quickly. The more stressors that hit your system, the faster you can react. I call it the well-being tank. 
When that tank is full, you can go a long distance. When the tank is empty, you can't. And that has to do with recovery and how resilient you are to be able to adapt to those stressors. So people say, I want to be more productive, right? I look at it almost like I want to be more resilient, right? I want to be able to, to be strong enough so that anything that comes, I'll be able to adapt quickly to that. And I think that concept of how individuals can be resilient is a really important part of also looking at how the infrastructure is resilient. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rethink. Find a complete library of past episodes at iTunes or wherever you're listening to this.